All right, good. So let's first look at 1 Corinthians 15. And what we are going to do today is we are going to be bouncing back and forth from 1 Corinthians 15 and Ephesians 1. So keep your, your markers, your finger marked, and use, a, use something to stick in your Bible if you have to to switch back and forth, forth quickly. Let's look at verse 3 in 1 Corinthians 15. It says this, it says, For I, have, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one of untimely born, he appeared also to me. And what we see in the continuing of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which goes on for 58 verses, is an apologetic for the resurrection, giving evidences of the resurrection to the church. To the church, right? It's written as an apologetic to the church of the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection. It is also there as an apologetic, not just to give us a defense, but it is a fight for the joy for the church. To see the evidences that are in Scripture as well as in history and time, as, as, as Paul clearly lays here, that there was 500 people who have seen him and can give testimony that they've seen him literally after he died on the cross but it is for a fight of joy for the church. And what we have been talking about as we've been going through Ephesians 1 is we've been seeing how Paul is given this great doxology of praise. This great doxology of praise, which is to compel the church, to move the church, to drive the church, to praise God, to worship God, and to worship God for these extremely important things. And we've been listing them out. And we've been talking about them week by week. And here in 1 Corinthians, Paul then makes the connection here that of first importance for the church, that is which of first importance, as according to the Scripture, that Christ died for our sins, He was buried, and that He was raised. I like to call it the DBR, the Death, Burial, and Resurrection the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, of first importance, of everything. That is what we as a church and as a people are to be about. This is the the center of of the gospel message. It's the center place by which we stand. It's the center place by which we unite. And if we miss the significance of the DBR and the resurrection, right, then we miss the greatest joy that God has really shared with us in the universe. Never in history has there ever been a divine, joy-filled event that is worth great praise and worship and awe and wonder than there happened in that spectacular morning when Christ rose from the dead. Never. In every event in history, 
every event, this is the greatest. The climax of all history. It is the the very event in, in all of history that's set into motion this domino effect that will one day conclude in the resurrection of all dead and then a renovation of creation itself. This morning I was reading that the devotion that I shared with you all uh, that, that was put out by Desiring God, and I just had to put this into my, my message this morning. And this is a, a quote by uh, Tony Rinke, and he said this on the resurrection. He said, The Old Testament foretold of this joy. The birth of Christ announced this joy. The Holy Week seemed to extinguish the joy. But the resurrection of Christ is the point in history when the unassailable torch of God's joy emerged from the sea of of foaming rebel hostility, rose up and lit the, the summit of an Olympic torch of joy that will burn for all eternity. That is awesome. That is awesome. That is awesome. So why is there such hostility in our world towards such great joy to such great joy why do we seek to replace it with such weaker less joys that don't last well the world has a view of the resurrection and we're not going to spend too much time here but the world is always denied and has always sought to obscure the resurrection from the very day it happened we're not in anything new time where all of a sudden there's this great offense toward Christianity or this great offense toward the church. It's always been there. It's, it's always been there. Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15, recounts the time when the chief priests looked at the guards of the soldiers who, who had no idea what happened to Jesus when the tomb was opened up and they told him, just tell everybody a lie that, that the disciples came, beat you up, and took Jesus. And we'll pay you for that. And that same lie is what is still propagated. That same hostility is still there. They deny the, the necessity of the, res- of the resurrection by excusing its reality altogether. We, we hear arguments like, like the, the women actually went to the wrong tomb. We hear arguments that, once again, the disciples stole the body or the Jewish leaders stole the body, which would be kind of counterintuitive of what they would want. But why would the disciples stole stole the body? They were scared. They were in fear. They were hiding. Some others would say that that Jesus didn't actually really die. He didn't die completely, but he just kind of passed out in in a comatose state, which is called the swoon theory. And of course, anybody knows history, that Romans do not let anybody survive the cross, survive crucifixion. So to the world, it's offensive. They, they hate the idea because as we've talked before in the past, that human nature says, I'm okay. Says, I'm okay. And if I'm okay, then it is really offensive to me that somebody would have to die for me. So the resurrection is offensive. It is so offensive to the world to insinuate that one needs to be saved from themselves. And there's also a popular religion's view, popular Christianity, nominal Christianity is what I'm talking about here, the view of the resurrection and, and what has happened 
over the years is we've kind of turned it into a one-day celebration, which is today, you know, one-day celebration, which is, which is great. And we, but, but you understand that the day of worship of Sunday is no longer Saturday because of the resurrection. That's awesome. Good job. You can do that more often. Right? The resurrection. Because of the resurrection. It is a day of every time we gather. The other 51 weeks that we gather together, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. This is certainly a good day, and I love how we do kind of hone in on it, and we all really all look good today, by the way. We all really look good, and, and, and we love celebrating. What a great week of memorial, reading that, that devotion was such a joy, and understanding and really focusing on it, but we don't want to forsake the other 151 weeks and what this day, every Sunday, rep- represents, because it is, remember, 1 Corinthians 15, of first importance. It's of first importance. Another way that we've, we've seen, and we can kind of talk about more, but this is another one that I've, I've seen recently, and what popular Christian culture has done, is, is we have deduced the, the, the resurrection into an, just an apologetic, to, to use it as, a, as a, just a, a, a defense, a, a defense that, that, that unbelievers must acknowledge, that they, they must, for us to be accepted, they must acknowledge that. And so Christian culture, as weird as it can be sometimes and the things that we do, we've, we've created books and movies. We've created movies about this. That, that all it does is they, they create a straw man. You know what a straw man is? You know, a, a scarecrow. They, they create a, a scarecrow of what an unbeliever acts like and what, a, what an atheist acts like. And then what they do is, is they take the high rifle-powered shots of, of their apologetics and shoot at them until that straw man has been obliterated. Are you all tracking with that? And the large problem with that is us creating these movies is, is we go to those movies and then we, we're the only ones. Like the Christians are the only ones that see it. Unbelievers don't see it. And when they do say it, they're like, is that what Christians think of me? Is, is that what they really think my view is? And how I want to treat other people. And so what it does, it creates in us as Christians, it, it makes us see unbelievers and atheists and deniers of the resurrection as our enemy. That's what it does. It, it makes the world our enemy. And that is an enemy that needs to be defeated and not loved and not served and not prayed for and not given the gospel to. And so if that's the case, what was the point of the resurrection? What was the point of the resurrection? The gospel itself and the resurrection itself is already offensive. We do not need to turn it around and make it a weapon to destroy the world. But to one as shown as a picture of the grace of God to the world, the grace of God to us, that we now share with the world. So believe it or not, my purpose this morning is not to just refill you with the same information that you might have heard for years and years. But as I want you to see individually and corporately as the church the great joy and the great hope that we have in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I've come up with um, a, a short list. <laughs> I call it a short list, but a short list of six. A short list of six points from 1 Corinthians 15, but as well that flow directly out of, and things we've already studied over the last couple of weeks of uh, Ephesians chapter 1. 
These are the, the resurrection seals, our election. If you're writing these down, you'll get them as we go. The resurrection seals, our, elect, our election. The resurrection legitimizes our adoption. The resurrection proves our redemption and forgiveness is accomplished. The resurrection comforts us in our suffering. The resurrection grounds our hope, our future hope of Christ in his headship. And the resurrection secures our inheritance. Seems like a lot, but we'll, we'll roll through them pretty quickly, I think. Number one, the, uh, the resurrection seals our election. Look at Ephesians 1 again. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. So verse 3 talks about the great spiritual blessings, the things by which we, we worship God. And these are like of the greatest things, right? And we see in verse 4, right here, we, we've read it before, it says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So even though unconditional election has been accomplished and, and, and done and ordained and predetermined before the foundation of the world, which, which gives us that scope or that idea of when it happened in time, before time itself, it was also the predetermined plan that the election would be accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, that at a specific time in history. And that all of salvation, all salvation of the elect before the cross and after the cross was all to be accomplished at that time. It was all being secured at that time. That is plan A, and there's no plan B, and God accomplished it right then and right there. The election of the saints was sealed for all eternity in the election, or in, in the resurrection. That's point one. That's very important for us to understand, the connections here between those. Let's look at point number two. The, the resurrection legitimizes our adoption. The resurrection legitimizes our adoption. And looking in verses five and six, it says, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. I love that passage right there. I love that passage. And verses 5 and 6 unpacks verse 4 even further, telling us exactly what election looks like, and that is for our adoption that according to the purpose of God's will, to the praise of His glorious grace, meaning our great joy, through Jesus Christ, He has loved us so that our election has led now to our adoption. Adoption is such an awesome, such an awesome illustration that, that the Lord uses here for us to see how we are brought into His family this beautiful union that we now have in Christ, this salvation and this new communion with God. We call him Father. He's not just this just judge, but now he's our Father. This personal relationship with him. Father. So let me illustrate further how the resurrection legitimizes our adoption. When a family decides to adopt a child, there's always a process that has to take place to adopt. You cannot just find the child that's homeless or needs a family and you just can't take them into your house and just decide that they're yours. That's called kidnapping. Don't do that. Right? 
You don't want to do that. The process of adopting can be long. It can be painful. It can be emotionally taxing. And it's very expensive. It costs. But when you come to the end, and you have your court date, and you show up in court, and the judge then signs off on the paperwork and declares it, the adoption of this child, making that child now yours and bringing them into your family, and now they have your name. That is what legitimizes the adoption. That's what legitimizes adoption. And this is what the resurrection of Christ has done. It has signed the paperwork of our adoption. It has declared to all the world and to the death itself and to the evil one that we have been adopted gloriously by God. And therefore we now can be called sons, adopted into the family of God and have joy in our Heavenly Father. There's implications of, of that that are just so deep and we're talking about our joy and adoption it keeps us from, from running and hiding. It keeps us running and hiding from God. We don't have to run anymore. We don't have to be scared anymore. And he's going he's gonna to punish us un, undeservedly or he's going to kick us out or is he going to disown you? No, he's adopted you. We don't hide anymore. It keeps us from stop trying to, to fix ourselves up and clean ourselves up. Because Christ has done it. He's cleaned us up. Our adopt, our, through our adoption, we, we can stop trying to fix ourselves and clean ourselves up. And this adoption drives us to the light in Jesus Christ to enjoy Him because we've been given this new name. We have become co-heirs with Christ. And because of our adoption, we have assurance. We have assurance that the one who has brought us into His family and given us this new name will not let us go and will not disown us. And because of our adoption, we now can pursue holiness and blamelessness because we are holy and blameless because the Father has said we are holy and blameless. This frees us to love Him. Because of the resurrection, our adoption has been legitimized. Number three, the resurrection proves, proves that our redemption and forgiveness is accomplished. Let me say that again. The resurrection proves that our redemption and forgiveness is now accomplished. In Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 says this. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight. It was his death that brought us re redemption. It was his death and through his blood that we now have redemption, that we now have justification, that now, that now we have substitution, and we also have the P word. What was the P word? Who remembers? P word? Propitiation. That's right. Propitiation. The wrath of God has been satisfied because of Christ. He was that perfect sacrificing, of sacrifice, atoning for our sins. And when he cried out, it is finished, the work of redemption and forgiveness was finished completely. His resurrection, three days later, defeated that curse of the death, proving that the work was finished completely. Finished completely. Therefore, it is 
finished. The Lord no longer holds sin against us because of what Christ's penalty that was due to us. This is the, the propitiation, the justification, the atonement. Christ has perfectly fulfilled what we saw in Psalm 103.12, that all of our sins have been cast as far as the east is to the west because of redemption through the power of Christ's blood. And it has been accomplished forever. Therefore, he loves us in spite of our sins, in spite of our failures, in spite of our faults. He loves us. He doesn't love a, a future version of you that you are trying to be better at, but he loves you now because of Christ. And it is the resurrection of the Savior, once again, that proves that our redemption and our forgiveness is accomplished, that it is done. That was number three. Number four. I told you we'd move through these pretty quick. The resurrection comforts us in our suffering. The resurrection comforts us in our suffering. Ephesians 1.9 says, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he has set forth in Christ. And we talked about this last week, that this is, the, this is showing us the divine sovereignty of God, that according to his purpose at the right place and the right time, he sent his Son and that God is working all things out according to his will and according to his purpose. And the purpose of God, which he set forth in Christ, was for his son to die on the cross and to bear the wrath of God on the cross that was due us. Christ suffered. Christ suffered. And our likeness that looks like Christ is not just in our holiness and righteousness and blameless, but is also in our suffering is when we look like Christ. So if we are to look like Jesus in our sanctification as we grow to be more and more like him and to look more and more like him, then certainly we are going to suffer. And the Lord is sovereign over all. He is sovereign over all suffering. And he uses all of it for his glory and for our joy. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that perfect Example of divine sovereignty in the midst of divine suffering for us to be encouraged. But there is one massive difference that we cannot relate to in suffering here that Jesus had that we didn't. And that is this, when Jesus suffered the penalty on the cross that was due us, our sin was so great, our rebellion was so heinous, and our hostility toward God was so great, our death was so bad that God separated himself from his son, forsaking his son, turning away from his son, because he became sin on our behalf. Forsaken and separated. And when we suffer, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we suffer, we do not experience that that our God is with us and that our God is walking with us. He is walking through it with us and using it for his glory and for our joy. So we take hope and we take comfort right now that the resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us, shows us that God is sovereign and that the final victory over sin and death has been completed and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. 
not even suffering, not even death. John Piper said that the point of Easter is that God is in this process of clearing his world of all all heartbreak. Therefore, as Tim Keller points out as well, he says, Christ's resurrection not only gives you hope for the future, it gives you hope to handle your scars right now. It gives us the hope to handle your scars right now. Because this light momentary affliction is only for now. And in the scope of, of a kajillion years of eternity, nothing. So we are to endure, endure, looking to the hope of our resurrected Savior, of Jesus Christ, looking to Him that when we suffer, we know that Christ is alive, that He is alive from the dead and is resurrected. So therefore, the resurrection gives us comfort in our suffering. Number five, the resurrection is our, our grounds, our grounds for future hope in Christ's headship. The resurrection is our grounds of our future hope of Christ's headship. And, and Ephesians 1.10 says, As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Right here, once again, in the fullness of time, God sent his son to unite all things in him. And then one day he will bring all things together in Christ. First, back, now we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 through 28, shows this, shows this headship of Christ here. Once again, in this apologetic to the church about the resurrection of Christ and why we find joy in him and how we endure this life. Look at verse 25. It says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things were put into subjection, it is plain. It is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be in all. Here we see the argument, the same argument that's being made in 1 Corinthians 15. The, first, the, same, the same argument that, that God is going to put all things under the headship of Christ. And that when Jesus comes again, all things will be united in him. And therefore, if, they, if, if we see this headship pointing toward Christ and toward the end of all things, and 1 Corinthians says that God is putting all things in subjection to Christ, then we find joy here. That we can find joy here. Turn over with me to John chapter 16. Turn over with me to John chapter 16 and read this with me. John chapter 16, starting in verse 16. He says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. You see the red letters there, so it's Jesus talking. And again, a, while, a little while, and you will see me. Verse 17, some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, 
So they were saying, what, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not be able to see me? And again, a little while, you'll be able to see me? Truly, truly, I say to you. When he says truly, truly, that's important. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. We will suffer, but the world will rejoice. Listen to that. The world rejoices in our lamenting and suffering and pain. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. Remember, this was before epidurals. For joy that a human being has been born into the world, so also you have joy now, or sorrow now. But you will see me again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. I love that promise. Church, we can hold on to that. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will be asking, you'll, you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name, asking you to receive, that your joy may be full. Jesus wanted his disciples right here to look to Easter, to look to Easter morn, that there will be sorrows, but then there will be great joy to come. In this life, there are great sorrows that we go through. There is suffering that we go through in this life, and suffering, but there are Great joys to come. There, there are joys even now that we experience that all point to the great joy to come. So now our sorrow, as Jesus said, will be turned into joy. And it is the resurrection of Christ that proves that all of our sorrow will be pointed and turned into joy. And this is what verse 10 is teaching us here in Ephesians 1. Is that when Jesus returns again, every pain will cease, every tear will be wiped away, every evil and wickedness will be judged. All things, because of the resurrection, will be put under the headship of Christ, and everything will be united in Him, things in heaven and things on the earth. The resurrection is for our joy and His power and authority over death. God is sovereign. Christ's resurrection and headship points to also our future hope in our, very, in our own resurrection. And when Christ unites all things, death no longer will have its sting. 1 Corinthians 15, once again, that death will no longer have its sting and pain over us. That is a huge point for us to understand. That the resurrection grounds all of our future hope is in him. And that our resurrection will one day be accomplished because Christ has been raised from the dead. And it points us forward to look at that time. Number six, last one. The resurrection secures our inheritance. This is going to be kind of a short one because actually we have not covered this in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1. That the resurrection secures our inheritance, but I didn't want to leave it out because I think it's extremely important. Look at verses 11 
through 14 in Ephesians 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now this is what we are going to cover in the next two weeks in Ephesians chapter 1. But pointing ahead here, the resurrection has secured our inheritance now and uh, for all of eternity. What is our inheritance? And inheritance isn't just isn't riches and gold and mansions and, and crystal seas and all that stuff that we've sung about in the, in, in the old hymns and such, but the, our inheritance is so much greater. And if you're looking for a future inheritance, then you're missing the inheritance that you have now. And that our inheritance now is that you have Christ. Our inheritance is that we get God. We get Christ here and now. And it's because of the resurrection and the giving us of the Holy Spirit, setting that seal, the seals that guarantee of that inheritance for us. As later in verse 14, you saw, you saw that. Let's turn now back to 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised... And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we in Christ have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. We are to be most pitied if Christ is still dead. We're wasting our time. We should all just go outside and throw out the Easter eggs and enjoy our candy because that's all we got. That's the only joy that we have this morning. That's the only thing. And them Starburst jelly beans do not last in my house. They are phenomenal. Those are good stuff. But if that's all we have in this life, if that's the only joy that we have, then it does not last. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And if Christ is raised from the dead, then death itself is now dying and Christ is alive. And therefore we celebrate. We celebrate Christ because he has given us himself. And we celebrate a, a feast of good news and celebration together because he is alive, because he is resurrected from the dead. Because he is resurrected, resurrected from the dead. So bringing it all together, studying the Passion Week, the week before the Resurrection Day, we celebrate right Thursday through Saturday of the Passion Week after Jesus was arrested in the garden. Jesus was completely abandoned by all of his followers. There was not one that wanted to have any kind of claim that he was even near them. One flat out betrayed him. Another publicly denied him explicitly. Like he used language that we would call not good. To show the emphaticness that he does not 
know this person. Three times he did that, no less, three times. And when Jesus was arrested, all the disciples, not including the followers, the throngs of people that, that, that worshipped him and declared Hosanna in the highest, just a week before, all deserted him. Those who were closest with him, those who saw Jesus walk on water, those who saw Jesus calm the storm, those who saw Jesus raise the dead to life, those who saw Jesus heal the man with the withered hand, those who saw Jesus uh, uh, make the blind to see, all abandoned him, and they scattered. Nowhere, no one to defend him in his trial. No one to comfort him in his execution. They were struck with, with, grip, with gripping fear. They were anger. They were confused. They didn't know what to do. There were so many questions that, that loomed around them. What is this? What were we doing for the last three years? And I think their greatest fear as well was, are we next? Are we next? And they were horrified, I think, to think that they could die like Jesus did. But let you see this. After, so I don't want to wake the baby. After the resurrection, but after the resurrection, everything changed. Everything changed. It was like a, a light switch flipped on with the disciples. They now became apostles. They became unmoved and steadfast and bold and confident in the Spirit. And God used these bold men now to spread a passion for the supremacy of Jesus Christ to all the world. We are descendants of that passion. We are here today because of what God has done. How was it that once these deniers, these scared cowards hiding in a room, just like all of us would be, how is it that they all scared in fear of a torturous death and now they were bold and confident, trusting in the Holy Spirit, trusting in the Lord, standing in front of the temple in the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, sharing the gospel and preaching the gospel in the temple. How is it? The resurrection. The resurrection. The resurrection. Their sorrow has been turned into unfathomable, unexplicable, unstoppable joy. Their sorrow has been turned into joy. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. Go all the way to the end. Look at verse 56. Yes, I'm passing up a really awesome section there, but verse 56. He says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. That sounds like Romans 7, right? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Meaning this, that no matter what comes our way, suffering, persecution, death, nakedness, sword, doesn't matter what it is. Whatever comes our way, we are confident in the resurrection of our Savior in that one day, no matter what they do to this body, it doesn't matter. 
We too will one day be like our Savior. And this is what drove the apostles in their faithfulness and in their steadfastness. And this too, church, this morning is to be our victory. And therefore we are to be steadfast and immovable and to do the work of the Lord. And to do the work of the Lord. Sovereign Grace Church, Church of Jesus Christ of our resurrected Lord, this is what we are to be about. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. It is not Saturday. It is not Saturday. It is Sunday. And the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is alive. The tomb is still empty. Therefore, let us radically live confident in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us have the resurrection fill us with joy. And may that joy be in all of our life and in our hearts this morning. A joy that cannot be stolen, a joy that cannot be taken. The things that can be taken and can be stolen, we should live freely with. But that joy is what cannot be taken. And I think the hope and what we should do, I think the command for us to do, is we should ask for that joy. And we pray that the, the Holy Spirit would, would give us that joy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we glorify you. We worship you, we praise you because of the great evidences of your resurrection. But what the resurrection has accomplished and in your divine providence, you've accomplished so much through your Son. And you've done it for our joy. And so I pray this morning that you would fill us with the joy that only comes from knowing Christ. I pray that the, the things that we've been holding on to, that we find joy in, the trinkets and candy of this life that, that pass away so quickly, Maybe it is life itself which soon become as nothing in comparison to the fullness of joy that we have in Jesus. I pray that these aren't just realities that, that, that don't make sense or, or, or something that seems so far and so distant, distant, but oh God, we plead by your Holy Spirit to make these things real and evident to us through your word. the resurrection of Christ has massive implications for us on our everyday. Forgive us, O oh God, for our cowering. Forgive us for, for pretending as, as if you were not even alive, living as if we were still in the upper room, hiding. But we would be as our Savior for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, endured suffering, that we too would follow our, the footsteps of our Savior, that in joy we would be faithful and radical for you. Lead us now as we, we respond, O oh God. Lead us now as we respond to, to, to uh, uh, maybe it is to follow Christ, to, to see that joy and to go after that that, that deep joy that is in Christ the very first time. It is to repent of sin, to repent of finding joy in so many other things.
things that may be even sinful. Lead us now in our conversation, God, that it may be honoring and glorifying to you. To the glory of your name, we pray all these things. Amen.